lead. Mick Dittman is squeezing through on naturalism's emanations there with heroicity. And here comes Viander Cross. Viander Cross down the outside is motoring home. Naturalism the leader. Viander Cross inch by inch is wearing him down. Naturalism still in front. He ran out near the line, but Naturalism wins at a half length to Viander Cross in a bumping finish. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and the High Gang Group. Trainers strive to have horses spot on for race day. Fuel cells up, the right mental state, the right fitness levels. Equally important is the horse's capacity to recover quickly from racing and track work. The aim is to give owners every opportunity to win optimum prize money by keeping a horse in training for as long as possible. High Gain Recuperate is a powerful blend of electrolytes, B-group vitamins and vitamin E in paste form which can be administered after fast work and in the days leading up to a race to assist recovery. 30ml of Recuperate drawn from the 500ml bulk pack is the economical alternative to individual electrolyte and vitamin paste syringes. High Gain Recuperate powers performance and recovery. Visit the High Gain website and use promo code johntap.racing to receive 15% off your next Recuperate purchase. Dr. Jeffrey Alexander Chapman, now retired, is a man who hasn't wasted one minute of his 82 years. He's lived a life of astonishing contrast. In sport, he represented his country in the game of rugby union. His professional life began as a young doctor in a busy medical practice at Dubbo. A burgeoning fascination with thoroughbreds led him to an extraordinary 30-year career as a professional trainer. He achieved multiple success at the highest level, including two wins in the time-honoured AJC Derby. In 1993, his professional life turned the full circle when he left the racing industry to return to medicine, this time on the Gold Coast, where he practised until four years ago. Jeff never really left the field of medicine. During his time at Rose Hill, Rarely a day went by that a member of the Rose Hill Racing Fraternity wasn't knocking on his door to seek consultation on many and varied medical problems. He was a man whose opinions were strong and he was never afraid to voice them, pretty loudly on occasions. He defied medical wisdom for some years by smoking cigarettes. He wasn't averse to a glass of red and he was the very best of company on a social occasion. His wicked sense of humour was always bubbling under the surface. To use one of his own favourite words, he was never misanthropic. I'm delighted to renew acquaintances with an unforgettable character in Australian racing. Doc Chapman, to use the title of A.B. Facey's famous book, You've Lived a Fortunate Life. I have, John. I was only at Rose Hill for 20 years, to correct you. Oh, beg your pardon. It's all right. But that was long enough. (laughs) (laughs) But but a few years in Dubbo before you came to the city. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I have having a run around there for a while. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, on moving to the Gold Coast, you joined a busy practice and you picked up the threads of a career which had begun in Dubbo many, many years before. How did you feel in the first few weeks after such a long time away? Was it a bit intimidating? 
No, not really. I I'd always kept up to date. I education-wise, I used to follow things, and I used to go to tutorials at um, Westmead Hospital when I was at Rose Hill, mm. just to keep on the ball. I think you do that so that if something goes wrong with yourself, mm. which sounds a bit selfish, um, or should I say narcissistic, mm. uh, you tend to – one of the reasons you tend to do medicine or like to do medicine is to understand what's actually happening in your own body without having to rely on anyone else. So mm. you maintain a degree of independence, which is always very fortunate if you can do that sort of thing. Mm. So I maintain my medical status pretty well. Plus, it was very applicable to the horses. They're sort of human being athletes. Yeah. And with four legs. Mm. Yeah, you always applied your medical training to the animals you were training. You were very strong on that point. Yeah, they're very similar to a professional athlete, except they don't talk to you, which is fortunate. Mm. <laughs> and <laughs> on on that uh, stand, and that, that's one of the reasons you can understand better what's happening in a horse. You don't just see the horse. You see him and you can understand what's doing with his lungs, his heart and his metabolism and his joints and his feet and all that sort of thing, mm. which is very important when you are training the horse to get a better understanding of what's actually going on with him. Mm. And and that's how he can talk to you as well. Yeah, that's his language. Yeah. Now, you were 78 when you left that medical practice at Main Beach. Not yeah. many medical practitioners exceed that age, do they? No, well, actually, the last seven or eight years I spent doing locum, uh, med- locums around Australia helping out, well, helping out, taking the place of doctors mm. who were in the bush, far out places, who had never got a vacation or who can't get a holiday because mm. they can't get anyone to take over the replacement. Yeah. And to be able to do that, you've got to have a few more skills other than writing a prescription mm. in a city practice, yeah. not that I'm whittling city practices because no. there's some very clever doctors there, don't get me wrong. But you've got to be a jack-of-all-trades, from fractures to minor surgery to obstetrics to you name it, mm. and uh, emergency medicine particularly. So you've got to have a few skills other than just getting out of the university, so to speak. Yeah. And so I'd go and do a couple of months or a month at the various practices, ranging from far north Queensland to Broome to uh, Victoria and, and so on, yeah. to give these blokes a bit of a break. Mm. It seemed very altruistic at the time, and I guess that's the way of it. But one, I was doing it, having come from the bush, I knew what it was like. And these blokes now, they they can't get anyone to go there nowadays. Since I was doing it, there's 600 less rural and remote remote doctors Mm. in Australia. And then governments come up and say, we'll put hundreds of doctors in the bush with emergency clinics and all this sort of stuff. How do you do, which um, mm. our current government go on with? You can't get anyone to go out there. doesn't no. matter what you pay them. No. And the more they pay them, the more they pay in tax. So it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Jeff, we'll so, pay tribute to your favourite horses a little later. But for now, I want to trace the origins of the extraordinary life you've lived. Now, you and your sisters were born way out in the sticks at Cobar, where your dad, Reg, was a man of the land. Correct. 
And then you made the move to Dubbo. How old were you when uh, your parents decided to move to Dubbo? I think I was five or six. It was 1947, so I I must have been six or seven. It was 1946. I'm not sure because when I went to Dubbo, I ended up in first class. So Mm. I'd been tutored at Burundara, that was the name of the property, by they had a governor there that used to teach the kids. There were three families on Mm. this property. And apparently I was a bit of a problem child, so my (laughs) mother used to teach me when they'd kick me out of the classroom. Mm. Um, so I was obviously pretty small and a pain in the ass, but um, <laughs> she she taught me. So when I got to Dubbo, I was into first class, and uh, that's where we went from there. So it had to be about nine forty six, I guess forty seven. Mm. Your mum Jean actually held a degree in agricultural science. No, and no, in- just straight science. Uh, was it? Yeah, did she? Yeah, yeah. And she encouraged you to follow a similar path, and hence your enrolment at the Farrah Memorial Agricultural High School at Tamworth, where you spent five years as a boarder. Happy days? Oh, great time, great time. Um, yeah, I, I remember them well. I mean, we had to do everything. As school children, we had to get out of bed at three or four o'clock in the morning if you're a year fresher. Mm. first and second year, and you had to get the cows in and all that sort of business. And then as you got older, you became more senior in the in the business, and so it went. And um, they had a poultry there and a piggery and horses, draft horses we used to put in the wagon, and mm. they used to cart the milk up from the dairy up to the school. And it was a general agricultural background. You had to work at the school as well as do schoolwork. But um, and it was very sporting orientated, and the school cadets, of course, as well. That was a big part of it. Mm. The army, so-called. Um, but it was a great time. Great time. Mm. Well, eventually you made your way to Sydney Uni, where you began your first year of an agricultural science degree. But that all changed when you started to have coffee on a regular basis with a group of young medical students. Yeah, it did. Um, it was quite fa- very fortunate to go to college. Anyone that goes to a university that can't go to a college misses out on a lot, mm. unfortunately. You see people from every faculty in life. I mean, I knew nothing about medicine, I'd, and so I did first-year ag science. And fortunately, first-year ag science and first-year medicine do the same subjects, physics, chemistry, botany and zoology, but you also, in agri-science, did another subject called agriculture. Mm. So the transformation from first-year ag-science to second-year medicine wasn't very difficult, provided you got sufficient marks in those subjects because you all did the same exams. And when we used to have these coffees at night, you'd be in the room of these other medical students in second, third year or whatever, and I used to see their anatomy books and atlases and what have you and talk to them about them. Mm. And I became quite fascinated by the human body mm. and its functioning. I thought, gee, this is interesting. And I was pretty young, so it also produced – it required me to do an extra two years at the university. Medicine was six years and ag science was only four. So I was pretty young, so it meant that if I did medicine, I'd still only be 21 by the time I graduated. Mm. So I thought, well, now – I'll look into this, and 
myself and another fellow doing ag science whose father was a doctor in Lismore, Stuart Siller, mm-hmm. we both decided to transfer to medicine, uh, which we did. And from then on, it was a medical degree instead of an ag science one. Mm. A few of your mates enlisted for national service around this time, and you were pretty keen to follow suit. You told a few fibs, though, didn't you, to get there? Yeah, well, all the blokes in my year were a year older than me, for reasons I've described earlier. But mm. So they were all going into national service in second year. And I thought, gee, I don't want to go into national service with people I don't know, so I'll go in with these blokes. So mm. I put my age up a year to do national service. Well, as it turned out, the following year they stopped national service. Yeah. <laughs> but I must say I had one of the funniest times of my life mm. doing national service. It was hilarious. Mm. And uh, the Sydney University Regiment was like uh, 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 that show that was on TV years ago. A bit like, it was a bit like MASH, you mm. know, with Klinger and all those folks. <laughs> <laughs> It was hilarious. you got no idea. Well, back then, Jeff, you were not the big burly bloke you are today. In fact, in your own words, you were on the scrawny side, and that was the main reason you joined the boxing troupe. I'm talking about the National Service days. And that training started to put some bulk on that puny frame. Yeah, it did. I, um, I went into Nasho and decided that, I give the boxing a go because they got special meals. They used to get steak and eggs and chips and all that sort of thing. <laughs> Whereas the blokes that were doing the normal national service used to eat powdered egg and toast and what have you. <laughs> so I thought I'll give this boxing a go. So my three months of national service consisted of boxing. And when that finished, the last week with swimming was on. Mm. So I got into that too. Mm. So for the last two days, I had to do national service. And one of the other fellas doing national service was a fellow called Peter Maloof. Mm. He was the medical officer for the Sharks for 30-odd years. Mm. A lot of people would know of him, a great bloke, and mm. he was a doctor out at Sutherland there, mm. had a great practice. He's only recently retired, I understand. Mm. And he'd never been the school cadets. So one of the standard routines in the cadets is you have to slope arms where you lift your rifle up and put it up over your shoulder. Mm. which is a definitive movement. You've probably seen them doing it. Yeah. Uh, Although with today's new weapons, I guess they mightn't do it. Well, when Peter finished three months national service, he was in the boxing as well. He was a really good fighter. Um, He couldn't even slope arms. (laughs) (laughs) So he'd have to box the enemy instead of shooting them. But um, they were great times. And the, the fellow that was coaching us, the boxing coach, he said, at that stage, I was under an 11-7, fought in the middleweight division. Yeah. He said, from now on, I was only 17, he said, you'll find you'll put on a lot of weight because I was pretty scr- I was tall but scrawny. Mm. Anyway, I said, okay. So, sure, uh, we'd done three months intensive training mm. and sure enough, in the next year or two, I went up to about 14 stone. So, it was much better for playing rugby. Yeah. So well, did me a favour. Upon how many hapless opponents did you unleash your fistic fury? Well, you had the battalion fighting, so you had three fights in the battalion mm. to work out if you could 
uh, win the division in the, in the battalion. Mm. And then they had what they call the brigade, which is the amalgamation of all the battalions. It's sort of the grand final. It's the Everest day of, mm. of boxing in the army. Yeah. And um, that's only one fight. That's the uh, cock of the walk, so to speak. Yeah. So, so it was all good. Did you ever, for one moment, contemplate a serious crack at the fight game? Well, this warrant officer who was in charge of the boxing suggested that I ought to contemplate having a go at it mm. start the Olympics and all that sort of stuff, but I knew I wasn't any good at it, or not that good anyway. Mm. And we had a middleweight, George Barnes's brother, mm. who was the fourth-rated middleweight in Australia. Mm. I can't remember his Christian name, but it doesn't matter. Mm. And he was doing detention CMF or something, and they co-opted him into coaching the boxing, because being a professional he wasn't allowed to fight in these fights. Mm. Well, he made the rest of us look very ordinary. Did he? <laughs> he sure did. Yeah. His timing and speed was immaculate. Mm. So it was then that the penny dropped with me pretty quickly that this wasn't the game for me. Plus, getting your head knocked about wasn't a good trick either, I thought. Mm. So um, I dismissed that idea very swiftly. Mm. The university rugby union team had a great history and a great reputation, and it wasn't long before you got a start under a coach who had gained fame in the Wallaby ranks himself. Uh, most of our coaches had Wallaby fame. Mm. First of all, we started with a bloke called Max Elliott. Yeah. Max had played for Australia and gone to South Africa. Then we had John Solomon, who was the captain of Australia, one of the best footballers we've ever had. Then we had Richard Murray Tooth, Dick Tooth. Yeah one of the best footballers of all time, and and they're all great blokes as well. Mm. I was very fortunate. Well, Richard Tooth became a distinguished orthopaedic surgeon later on, and he would have a significant impact on your life. He did. Um, he was a, an orthopod at Sydney Hospital where I was a resident mm. and an orthopaedic registrar. And at the time, ortho, orthopaedics was very difficult to get into and when you got into it, it was very difficult to get anywhere unless you knew someone. And Dick had organised for me a job at London Hospital as an orthopaedic registrar, mm. which was an exceedingly prestigious job. Mm. And I didn't have any money, so I thought, well, I'd better go back to Dubbo and try and get some money in general practice mm. for a couple of years before I go there. But the reason Dick had been able to organise me into the orthopaedic registrar job at London Hospital mm. was because I played football. Mm. <laughs> and foot, hospital football was big time in those days, particularly in England. Mm. So that was the main reason I was able to be eligible or not eligible, uh, able to get the job. Mm. But I went to Dubbo for a couple of years and because I was making a few bob, I decided to stay there. I got lazy. Dropped anchor. I, ne I never ever went. <laughs> no. Under Dick Tooth's tutelage, you made the Wallaby side for three tests in New Zealand in 1962. You drew one and lost two. Now, Jeff, firstly, you had emerged by then as a pretty good goal kicker. When did you realise you had some talent with the boot? Oh, I think I was in fourth or fifth year medicine. We had a very good second grade side that I was in. And 
we didn't have a goal kicker. So I thought I better give this a go and see how I get on. So mm. I had a go at it and I used to play a bit of golf and surprisingly it's very much like golf. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of watching the ball and kicking the ball at the right place and over she goes. So I practiced a bit at it and what have you and became reasonably proficient at it. So that's how it all started. Mm. And from from then on, it was uh, part of my armamentarium, so to speak. <laughs> There's another one. <laughs> the first test in New Zealand in 1962 resulted in a nine-all draw. And uh, modesty may prevent you from elaborating on this, but you scored all nine points for the Wallabies. Well, whenever you toured New Zealand, you always played 16 men. There was the team of 15, the Kiwis, and the referee. (laughs) And they were always very biased. Yeah. So we were leading 9-6, and there was a few minutes to go, and there's a a ruck on our 25. Well, it wasn't a ruck. Someone tackled a, a Kiwi with the ball. Catchpole, as usual, was first there. He grabbed the ball. It wasn't a proper ruck. And away he went, penalty, free kick to New Zealand uh, because of Ken Catchpole taking the ball out of a ruck. Mm. Absolute crap. It wasn't the case at all. But that (laughs) enabled Don Clark to kick the goal. And so it was nine all. And I, I talk about their referees. We played a team called Thames Valley up at Counties. If you've got the time, I'll just relate this short story to you. Mm. And the referee, he was, I don't know, he was very nervous and anxious. And one of their breakaways came around the scrum before the ball came out and started kicking in my side of the scrum. And I was playing breakaway at the time. And uh, he accidentally ran into my elbow doing this <laughs> nefarious act of his. <laughs> so a few chaps decided this wasn't on, so a bit of a... Melee broke out, and the referee's blowing the whistle frantically. Anyway, eventually it all settled down, and we had a winger playing for us called Bruce Harland, who, strangely enough, was also from Cobar. Mm. And he made Bruce Harland and myself shake hands because of the fight. Mm. So that was all right. Anyway, that's our hilarious right in front of the grandstand, if you please. Mm. He went after the game. The Kiwis came in and said, would I mind going in and having a look at the referee that he collapsed? Uh, so I thought, oh, yeah, okay, this will be good. So I go in and sure enough, he was, all he was suffering from was some sort of anxiety state. Mm. So I chatted him up and fixed him up and I said to him, I said, I want you to know something else. He said, oh, yeah, what? I said, you're one of the worst referees we've ever played on. I used other words, but that was good enough. He said, it's all right for you, he said, but I've got to live here. <laughs> so, Can't argue with that. Example. So that bloke accidentally ran into your elbow, did he? Yeah, the breakaway from the other side. Yeah, they used to do that often, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, you lost the next two tests, but it was a great experience and something that has become more precious, I'd imagine, as the years have gone by. Now let's get back to academia. You successfully completed that six years at Sydney Uni. You emerged with an MBBS, Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery, and then you settled into uh, a routine at that little practice in Dubbo. 
you got to do some surgical work too, didn't you, in those early days? Yeah, well, practice in the bush in those days was real general practice. You did everything. You did surgery and general practice and the whole lot. And the surgery is very good because um, you're not sort of listening to patients. You're actually doing physical work, which Mm. I enjoyed tremendously. Mm. And they, in that practice, they're pretty clever, these blokes. They half conned me. They let me do all the orthopedics in the practice. There were three other doctors. Mm. It was a pretty big practice in Dubbo Mm. and very popular. So I was doing all I'd ever set out to do, and we did all other surgery too, like appendixes and gallbladders and caesareans and tonsils and that routine stuff. Mm. And it, it was it was good stuff. But I was trying to do too many things. I was trying to we, – another couple of friends in my started, of mine, we started rugby again in Dubbo. And so – and then we sort of started a rugby club, a, a, a licensed rugby club. And I was on the race club as well. Mm. And I was on the hospital board also. Mm. So it was, I would hate to have been my husband because you'd never see me. (laughs) But anyway, so it was becoming all a bit overwhelming, I think. So eventually, I I guess it was either a case of take hold or you're going to burn out or something. I don't know what happened. Mm. The the reasons for my change were protean, as the word goes. <laughs> but um, I, I, I came to a fork in the road. And as that American poet Robert Frost says, uh, I took the road less, least travelled and uh, started training horses. Well, you developed an interest in thoroughbreds before that. Uh, and that led you to becoming a regular at the Melbourne Spring Carnival. You'd take your holidays every year to correspond with the four days of the Flemington meeting. Somehow you became friendly with Tommy Smith and you finished up his unofficial chauffeur. Wherever Tommy wanted to go during the course of the carnival, you'd take him. Yeah. Well, many years ago, one of the blokes that played in our football team at Sydney Uni was Treve Williams. Mm. Treve was doing vet science. And he became Percy, Sine, Percy Sykes' partner yep. at Bratchick. Mm. And once upon a time, Stan Fox built a wonderful horse hospital at Coolerman, as mm. you'll recall. Mm. And Percy's team were the ones that had most access to it. And they were starting to perform, or they wanted to perform some orthopedic procedures. So Treve asked me, would I come down and show them some orthopedics. This is an abbreviation of the story. Mm. So one day they had a yearling by Todman out of Flying Gauntlet. I remember it distinctly. Mm. It was from Kirkham Stud that that Fred Sutton owned. You know, Fred Sutton had the mm. Holden business on Parramatta Road. Yep. And it was worth a fortune in those days. So he said, will I come down and help them uh, plate the fracture on this horse's femur? So I said, yeah, good as gold. So one Saturday I I said, you've got to get all this gear. It'll cost a fortune. No, no worries. Forget the cost. Mm. So I told them what to get. They got all the gear, and I came down the Saturday morning, which was a day or two later, and we plated this horse's femur in the operating theatre at Stan Fox's hospital. So that's okay. And as horses are waking up for an anaesthetic, as you've probably seen, Mm. when they're lying sideways, they start to gallop Mm. in their sleep. 
I suppose it's a self-preservation mechanism running mm. away. Mm. So, but why in the process of doing this, he managed to fracture the plate again. Oh, dear. So, so that was the end of the healing. He had to be euthanized. Mm. However, it was a good experience. But through Treve, I met Percy Sykes. Mm. And I sort of became his surrogate son, for want of a better word. <laughs> and the blokes around Dubbo with horses, for some reason, well, I was always close to the horse community. Every now and then a horse would get sick and they'd ask me to come and have a look at it. And just out of interest, I'd go and offer my three bobs worth. Mm. And if I didn't know what was wrong with it, I'd find out the symptoms and signs and ring Percy. Mm. Now, he could diagnose them over the phone. He was an incredible man. Mm. I'd go back with all this newfound wisdom and advise the blokes accordingly. Mm. <laughs> so they thought I was another Percy. Anyway, when I come to Sydney, I'd always often stay with Percy and do whatever. And through him, I met TJ. Mm. So we became good friends, so to speak. And then for the last four years I was in Dubbo, I used to take my holidays in the spring. And every spring, Percy, Sykes, Tony McSweeney and Tommy Smith used to go to Melbourne with Tommy's spring team. Mm. And we'd stay at the Australian Hotel. Mm. And I was the gopher. I used to drive the car. So mm. I'd have to drive them from the hotel out to the track every morning. Mm. and back, and if Tommy wanted to go anywhere during the day, I'd have to drive him wherever he wanted to go, mm. which was some funny times. But So I learnt the finer art, I suppose you could put it down to, training horses from him mm. and Percy, of course. If Percy had been a horse trainer, he'd have been the best trainer of all time. Mm, I imagine, yeah. But well, uh, go on, sorry. No, I was going to say, Jeff, it's time to pause for – a break on our podcast. If I can get you to stand by there, we'll come back with you after this. July is a very significant month in New South Wales country racing. It's the time when the Clarence River Jockey Club presents four days of top-class country racing beginning on Sunday, July the 10th with the running of the $80,000 South Grafton Cup. Wednesday, July 13, features the time-honoured listed Ramoni handicap worth $200,000, supported by the $80,000 Grafton Guineas. Thursday, July 14, sees the running of the $200,000 Grafton Cup over 2,350 metres. The Ramoni and the Cup have been run continuously since 1910, missing only four years during World War II. Perhaps the most celebrated of all Grafton Cup winners is Kenzai, who won the race a few months before his Melbourne Cup victory in 1987. The Clarence River Jockey Club will wind down the carnival on Sunday 18th of July with the McLean Cup. Grafton in July has been a mecca for horses, jockeys and racing fans for well over a century. This year's carnival will be one of the best ever. My special guest is Dr. Jeff Chapman, former top horse trainer and a very well-respected medico over a long period of years. Here's a good story. Made early in your training career, you've got two two-year-olds in the same race at Dubbo one day, a homebred called the Sundance Kid and the other one you'd purchased as a yearling. His name was Lord Ben. Now, what happened in that race? Well, the race was called the Craven A Tiny Tots Stakes. The reason for that was one of our syndicate 
we had a syndicate called the White Thorn Syndicate that raced, decided we'd race horses and Dubbo. Mm-hmm. I used to train them for nothing. They used to throw in for the feed. Pretty good deal for them when I think about it. Mm. Anyway, we bred, as you say, the Sundance Kid and Lord Ben. So we've got the, these two horses in this Craven A two-year-old race. And the boys in the syndicate asked me, what, which one was I going to back? And I said, well, look, I'm having $20 on the Sundance Kid and $40 on Lord Ben because he's the best horse. But um, they're both a bit new and we don't know what will happen and so on. So they all agreed. And a couple of the members of the syndicate, or one was a bookie and he had a couple of close mates that were in the syndicate. Hmm. So around they went and the Sundance Kid won by six lengths and Lord Ben ran six lengths last. So down at the Dubbo Hotel that night, we're all having a bit of a drink and telling lies. And <laughs> they said, oh, a bloke called John Nestor rode Lord Ben. Mm. And he was very friendly with the bookmakers. Mm. And Johnny Nestor said to these blokes, uh, they asked him how was the horse any good. And he said, not worth a pie. But what they didn't know was when I checked the horses after, he was extremely shinsaw. Mm. But I did tell them that. But they still didn't believe me. They believed the jockey. They said, hey, no good. So I said, well, what I'll do, all that you've ever paid for the horse to date, I will buy you out, mm. give you your money back. They said, you beauty. So four of them dropped out immediately. I gave them $90 each because the horse, the horse cost $900. Mm. And four of them dropped out and the other five stayed in because they were sort of mates of mine. They're all mates of mine, but these blokes decided if I was going to stay in, they'd stay in with it. So they ended up only six of us in Lord Ben. We split the money, uh, shareholding up then. Mm. So they went for a spell. I pin-fired Lord Ben and yelled at him, turned them out, and when they came back, Lord Ben won his next six races straight. Mm. So that was the Lord Ben story from then on. Mm. And then I was talking to Percy about him one day. He said, send him down to Tommy. So we sent him down. Mm. And, of course, he won the Canterbury Guineas. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was the only horse. Tommy used to nominate every one of his two-year-olds for the Derby. Mm. And he's the only horse he never nominated for the Derby. Mm. And I said, why didn't you nominate this horse for the Derby? He said, you stick the doctrine. I'll stick the training horses. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, right now. Anyway, after he won the Canterbury Guineas, and he should have won the Rosehill Guineas, but that's another story. Um, he said, well, don't worry about it. We'll take him there and win the Cox Plate. But he pulled up a bit lame. And I said, mm. no, no, I'm taking him home. Mm. And uh, so I took the float over and took him home. Yeah. And he's the horse I literally came to Sydney with. Yeah. He won the Doombin <laughs> Cup in between times, though. No, after the Rosehill Guineas, no. Yeah. Yeah. No, I came to – he's the horse I brought to Sydney with me. Mm. Uh, I took him off TJ, so to speak. Yeah. And the next year I won the – the uh, Dooman Cup with him and whatever. But mm. if he'd end up no good, I'd have ended up back in Dubbo with my tail between mm. my legs. He launched your career. He did, yeah. Yeah. You bought the Rose Hill Stables, previously occupied by Bert Lyle, who'd passed away. Uh, you bought a handful of horses with you from Dubbo and you set up shop. And as they say, uh, predictably, the rest is history. Your yeah, stable... I see, I sorry. See. I was just thinking the other day, one of those horses was a horse called Alpine Pass. Mm. Now, you wouldn't remember her. She was a Bogan Road filly, but she's the great, great 
great-grandmother of Written Tycoon. Goodness me. Yeah, fascinating. Mm. And what a shire he's turned out to be, Written Tycoon. I, I end up selling it. I remember John Foister brought, bought Alpine Bass mm. office and uh, went on from there. Your stable foreman in those early days was Ray Bradley, the late Ray Bradley, who still held a jockey's licence and he rode some of your early winners, including a very fast two-year-old called St Louis Blue in the 1974 Silver Slipper. That win gave you a good kick along. Yes, St Louis Blue was a very fast horse, very fast two-year-old, and he was bred out at Roseneath Stud. Mm. He's by Royal Rocket. Yeah. Um, Fred Allsop had him originally and he died and I inherited St. Louis Blue and his owner. <laughs> mm. That's another story. Mm. Anyway, Rosalie Stud had Corinto, Tatnam and Royal Rocket at Stud. Yeah. And their manager, uh, Bob Watson owned the Stud, as you'll recall, mm. uh, and the manager was Wayne Beavis. Yeah, oh, dear me, yeah. Wayne being famous in the rugby league world. Yep as the uh, manager of many players and still is a manager of quite a few. He now lives up here on the Gold Coast. Mm. We meet regularly for coffee. Good. He's a f- funny man. Yes, he anyway, is. St. Louis Blue was an extremely par- fast horse by Royal Rocket out of a Todman mare. I can't think of a name. Mm. Jack Jackman or something. Anyway, um, one day he, we were in a two-year-old race there. Nine, they used to have 900-metre races at Rose Hill. And he drew the extreme outside and he was top weight. He was shooting for his fourth or fifth race in a row. And I had an apprentice called Gary Quinn, who I also inherited from Fred Olson. Mm. And he drew the extreme outside. So he put Gary Quinn on him and said, mate, just take him straight to the front and away you go. Mm. So he said, righto. He drew the extreme outside. He's very fast out of the machine. He jumped straight out, went straight to the rails, knocked them all down like kingpins and <laughs> won easily. Yeah. And they still use the film, or they used to use the film, Brian Killian. Yeah. You remember the Brian the Stewart? He used to tutor the apprentices. To show kids. They still use the, they use the film yeah. to show apprentices what they can't do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was a classic. Hey, Doc, the horse to propel you to the big stage was Leonotis, who came with a barnstorming run to beat a very good horse called Blockbuster in the 1978 Epsom. You had a Queenslander on board that day, Graham Cook. Yeah. Well, as you remember, I always wanted to have the best rider I could possibly get on my horses Mm. because they're the difference, unfortunately, between winning and losing. Mm. I had a lovely friend, Jeff Allendorf, Mm. used to write a lot of work for me and I'd use him at the provincials and so on. But he wasn't the actual top tier and he knew it and I knew it. And I, I used to always want the very best because unfortunately they win most of the races. Mm. So I'm scratching my head. All the good jockeys have been taken. None of them wanted to ride Leonidas. So, and they're obligated to the big stables, as you know, they still are. So I thought, I remember Graham Cook had ridden for me in Queensland and the owners of Leonidas came from Queensland. Mm. The prime owner was a fellow called John Hennessy, mm. who was the Australian leader in IV fertilisation in women. Mm. He started it up here, artificial insemination in women and the leader of the IVF world. Great bloke and good friend 
and I met him through medicine. So he sent he had sent me the horse, and I said, "What about we put Graham Cook on, being a Queenslander?" Mm. Well, of course they were, uh, thought it was a good idea. So we brought Graham down. I knew he'd suit the horse because he'd suited plenty of horses I used to take to Queensland. So he came down and. Uh, way they went and won mm. the money. Well, I stormed home. I can still see him, and he yeah, beat one of my. One. Yeah, I love Blockbuster, and you you spoiled the party for me on the day. Now, Jeff, <laughs> time's on the wing, mate. So we're going to slip through uh, a few of your better known horses here. Petrero gave you many thrills. He was the veteran of sixty three starts, twelve wins, fourteen placings. He won three Group Ones of Rothman's hundred thousand a show day cup at Caulfield and a galaxy on a very heavy track. He also ran third in a Stradbroke and second in a BTC sprint. Didn't he do a job? A very good horse, Petrero, and a, a very kind horse. Uh, he was by Red Tony. Mm. In those days when I was buying yearlings, I never had any money, mm. so I had to get the lower tier stuff. I used to buy strictly on type. And I had a pedigree criteria. They had to have a Nearco Hyperion cross. Mm. So I'd go through the sales and try and find these cheaper horses. And I think I did better then than I did when I got into the big league and could buy the expensive ones, but mm. except for Dr. Grace. And so that was just one of those things. And But he was mm. a great horse, but a lovely temperament. There was another occasion when you bought a yearling on type and it was in New Zealand and a cult by Ivory Hunter walked past. I don't think he was on your list of probables, but you were gobsmacked when you saw him. Well, I went to the sales and at that stage John Denoon had come on board mm. and John was an exceptional owner. He just said, you do whatever you like and I'll pick up the bill. You train them, put them in whatever races and whatever, and I'll just collect the trophies. <laughs> I thought, this is an ideal situation for me. <laughs> so he went to those sales and he said, just buy the best horse in the sale. I thought, geez, that's a bit of a tough one. <laughs> so I bought a horse called Imprimata yep. for 550000 New Zealand. <laughs> and he was the most expensive horse at the time. That He was the, most, the horse, the only horse that had cost more than $200,000 mm. that had ever repaid his purchase price in prize money. Mm. But it was an interesting lesson because after I'd bought the horse, I would have had 10 people come to me and ask me who I'd bought it for and could they go in it. Oh. I could have sold a horse in five minutes, mm. whereas I used to buy horses at the Sydney sales for ten and 15000 and mm. lie awake at night wondering, who I was going to sell it to. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so it was an interesting lesson. But anyway, at the same sales, the horses were bringing ridiculous prices, and I thought, I want a horse for myself to win the derby. So I just was poking around the sales and looking at this and that. I looked over the door at one of them, and I saw a horse that I thought was the dead spit of Niarco, mm. down to a white, um, some white hair just above his off hind fetlock, mm. uh, off hind hoof. Mm. I thought, what a magnificent little horse he is. Mm. So I looked at the thing and I thought, he won't bring much money. So I went out and bought him and he cost 23000 New Zealand. Oh, dear. I thought, that's my derby horse and that's my horse. Yeah. Well, uh, he was spot on. when I came on. home, mm. John said, who'd you buy that for? I said, I bought it for myself. He said, I'll have half. 
Mm, mm. <laughs> so after that, he said, look, I've got a new bloke I want to put into racing, mm. Stan Dumbrell. He said, uh, give him half of your half of that horse. Mm. So I only ended up with a quarter of him. Mm. Still, he was a great horse and was a lot of fun. Well, his name became Myo Card. He won the Brambles Classic at Kembler as a two-year-old. He ran second in the Champagne Stakes, but he really put it together as a three-year-old, winning the Autumn Classic at Caulfield by eight lengths. He then ran fifth in the Alistair Clark, and the next assignment was the Rawson Stakes at Rose Hill. Now, Jeff, to your amazement, despite an eight-lengths win at Caulfield, Shane Dye jumped off him. Yeah, um, Shane was a Kiwi, as you know, and he was very friendly with the Bone Crusher connections. Mm. The previous year, Bone Crusher and Waverley Star had fought out and enthralling Cox Plate. So this Rawson Stakes was billed as a rerun in all the papers and everything else. Mm. And Shane came to me and said, Gary Stewart has got appendicitis. He's in the hospital. Do you mind if I jump off my card and ride Bone Crusher? Mm. He knew I was getting my card ready for the derby. And um, I said, no, mate, you do what you think best. So he jumped off my card and jumped onto Bone Crusher. So I asked Mark de Montfort, who used to ride a lot of work for me mm. and the occasional races, would he ride him? And he said, jumped at the chance. He said, sure, I will. Yeah. And, of course, my card beat them by four or five lengths and I think Waverley Star ran second and Bone Crusher went home. Yeah, well, Mark de Montfort has been eternally grateful uh, for Gary Stewart's attack of appendicitis because <laughs> Meyer card won the Rawson by three lengths, he won the Tancred by two and a half and he won the AJC Derby by five lengths. Now, you decided to go on to the Sydney Cup after the Derby with Meyer card and he went brilliantly, but he was run down late by Major Drive. This story's been done to death, Jeff. But very yeah. briefly, Kerry Packer, who part-owned the winner, had backed your horse. It was an unhappy result for some, especially Greg Hall, who rode the winner, because Gregory was expecting a healthy present and finished up with nothing but the prestige of riding a <laughs> Sydney Cup winner. <laughs> Yeah, my car should never race in that race. It mm. was just sheer unadulterated greed on mm. my part yeah. that put him in the race. But I'd seen him, a better boy horse some years prior. Mm. Century, something century. Double century? Cent double, no, it wasn't double century. Another horse by century. Mm. Yeah, they brought up and he won the, the derby and the Sydney Cup. And I always had this in the back of my mind. Mm. He won it easily. But my card was the only three-year-old that ever carried more than weight for age in the Sydney Cup. Mm. Whatever the top weight was came out, so all the weights went up one kilo. The most any three-year-old ever got in a Sydney Cup was weight for age, mm. so he went up a kilo. But that wasn't what beat him. After he'd won the derby, he, he wasn't too well, and I... I ended up, I had to give him some antibiotics for a couple of days. And mm. It sort of set him back a bit. Plus, he'd had three pretty serious races prior to, mm. and he should never have run on the race. If he'd have been 100%, a major drive would have been. Yeah. He wins, yeah. Yeah, there's only, was a, just, uh, there's only a neck between them, as it turned out. Yeah, it was just one of, the, mm. one of human's evils, as you know. The two greatest evils are mm. fear and greed, mm. and greed got the better of me. <laughs> 
Now, as time flies by, Doctor, to the handsome, aristocratic and royally bred Dr Grace, who won 12 races, 16 placings, almost $3 million. He won four Group 1s, Chipping Norton, Derby, BMW and Underwood. Now, just one I wanted to ask you about. I remember his appearance as a three-year-old in the 1989 Caulfield Cup in which he was ridden by the legendary American jockey Willie Shoemaker, who was on his World Farewell Tour. He rode that horse. He was a little, tiny little man. He rode that horse at 45.5 kilos, ran fifth, three lengths from the winner. Yeah, it was. I was very friendly with the chairman of Caulfield, a fellow called Peter Young, mm. and he asked me, would I put Shoemaker on the horse um, and run him in the race? I didn't mind running him in the race, but he said, well, you put Shoemaker on the horse mm. because it's a great publicity exercise and you owe it to racing and so on. Well, I didn't mind that, and Shoemaker was a world-class jockey. Well, he drew five at the barrier, and he stayed five wide till they got to the top of the hill. Mm. And he took him to the front, rode him like the Americans do, leading and whatever, which didn't suit the horse. Well, we didn't think it did. Mm. Certainly in that race it didn't because he was hunting him. And when he came back, he got beaten three lengths. And when he got off the horse, he said, by gee, he said, he's a very good horse, this. Do you want to sell him? <laughs> did he? And, did he? Yeah, I said, no, thanks, Willie. We won't be worrying about that. <laughs> we'll mm. keep him, but thanks for your thoughts anyway. Yeah. But it, it was a shocking ride, uh, not that it mattered. And mm. um, so we went on from there. But mm. uh, that was the story of the Caulfield Cup. Dr. Grace went to Woodland Stud later and sadly passed away after getting only three crops. But out of those three crops, he produced about 117 winners. Wasn't he a good sort, Jeff? He was a classic thoroughbred, wasn't he? He was. He was the archetypal thoroughbred. Mm. Beautiful horse. And uh, ended up with a great nature, but he was a pig early in his life. Was he? But yeah. as he got older, he became very friendly and uh, lovely horse, beautiful yeah. animal. Perhaps the horse for whom you have the most affection was Groucho, a very honest and durable horse who tried his heart out every time he lined up. He never won a group one, uh, but he deserved to. He ran second in four of them, uh, but he did win a couple of group threes. He won four group twos and a total of 12 wins altogether. You loved him. Now, he was a stallion, but afternoon uh, in the stables, you'd let him wander about loose. Yeah, he was a, a, an amazing horse. He, he, he was ended up like a pet dog. Yet when he first came to us, he came to us from Colin Lamont at Wagga. Uh, mm. He was by a horse called King Hadrian. Mm. And, boy, he was wild. He'd lived in the paddock all his life. Mm. And funny enough, every time he came back in, even though he got quiet as he got older, he'd buck. You put the saddle on him and take him to the track and someone would get on him, he'd buck. Mm. Only for five or ten or fifteen seconds, but he loved it. Mm. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so I'd let him out of his stall and he'd follow me around the thing when I was going around checking on the other horses. Mm. He was a great animal. Funny uh, thing about him, you go back in history, they had a jockey strike and there was a Warwick Farm meeting on. So I rang Lee Friedman. I said, that apprentice D. Oliver you've got there, mm. 
Do you mind if I borrow him for the weekend? He said, no, we'll send him up. So he sent the only apprentices rode at the meeting. You probably remember mm, it. I do. Anyway, so he sent D. Oliver up and I put him on Groucho. I think it might have been a wait for age race. But anyway, so D. Oliver jumped on and around they went. And I think that was D. Oliver's first wait for age race. I'm not 100% sure, but I reckon it was. Mm, mm. And uh, uh, another thing about Groucho, he's never beaten at Warwick Farm. He was a horse that could accelerate on turns. Mm. which was his great capacity on, in racing, like if he'd be up with them and then or he used to lead a lot. But mm. as soon as he got to the turn, he's like greyhound. He'd just slip away. Mm. Didn't make any difference to his speed. Jeff, I, I don't want to let the opportunity pass without paying tribute to the late, great Ken Russell, who lost his life in a race fall at Rose Hill in the early 90s. Ken, of course, had been a superstar rider in Queensland, especially on the Gold Coast, where he won many, many premierships. I believe you were instrumental in getting him to Sydney. Well, as I've told you previously, it was very difficult to get a top rider every time you want a jockey. And I always wanted the best. But, well, not but, but I I came to know Kenny up here in Queensland because we used to come up every winter with horses, and I'd get him whenever I could to ride them. And I said to him, we, gave, we became very friendly, and as you know, he was a funny man. Mm. He was a really comical, bushy. He was a classic, great mm. bloke. Anyway, I said to him, how about you come to Sydney? Be the stable rider. I'll guarantee you X dollars a month. I took it up with John Denoon, of course. Mm. I didn't have the money. I'll guarantee you X dollars a month, and if you make over and above that, well, good luck. Mm. And um, he thought, well, that's not a bad idea. I wouldn't mind trying myself on the on the big stage. So he came to Sydney with me, and because we used him, everyone else wanted to use him, and he, he had a great career down there, and he was mm. an exceptional rider, as you know. Mm. And then that unfortunate accident, but mm. that's that's the reason he came. He won several Group 1s, just a couple that I can recall. He won an Epsom on Marimbula Bay. Uh, he won a George Ryder on Bureaucracy. And he won a Spring Champion Stakes for Brian Mayfield Smith on a horse called Sakana. But there were others. Uh, yeah. But, you know, you, you launched his Sydney career. There's no doubt. It's well documented. Yeah, and he used to come to Melbourne with us too, and we'd stay in the same same hotel or whatever units, mm. and uh, we had some funny days, funny days. Jeff, it's yeah. been great to catch up. I've had you on my short list for a long, long time now. Took me a while to track down your phone number, but I'm very pleased I did. We could go on forever and ever, and I think we might do episode number two at some future time. But lovely to catch up, lovely to reminisce and delighted that you're in good health, living quietly on the Gold Coast with your wife, Kate, and uh, pondering the diversified life you've had, the many things you've done and the many achievements you've put behind. Your journey has been a fascinating one. Congratulations on all you've achieved. Thanks very much, John. But just as an aside, I notice that you're going to be interviewing... Ray Warren at some stage. Yeah, very soon. And Rabbits used to play golf with us. And I must say, he's a very volatile golfer. 
is he? he um, he's got a very he got a very emotional overdrive. That's no pun. <laughs> but one day we were playing and he was very distressed. And he threw all his clubs into the lagoon next to the green, next to the fairway, and threw them all into the water. And lo and behold, he had to go in and get them back out because he'd left his car keys in the pocket in his golf bag. <laughs> he hasn't <laughs> made he that one. He got his keys out and he threw the bag back in. <laughs> Actually, Jeff, by the time this podcast goes onto the website, Ray's interview will have been to air. Um, all the more reason to, uh, uh, to expose your comments about that fateful day on the golf course. Hey, mate, lovely to talk. Look after yourself. I don't get to the coast very often, but when I do, right. I'll be looking for you. All right, John. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Jeff. Dr. Jeff Chapman, a man uh, who's put behind him a remarkable career uh, and, as I said at the start, a fortunate life. And he's been our special guest on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Mitovite has been producing high-quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life for almost 40 years. Mitovite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder, time-tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitovite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales Central Coast, Mitovite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitovite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website, mitovite.com, or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. The Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world.